0: Welcome to the G3 podcast. I am Virgil Walker. I'm here with Scott Annual and Josh Bice. Uh, excited to have you join us for this edition of the G3 podcast. The thing that that uh, that I really want to tell you about a number of things that we want to say about. There's a ton of things going on uh, here at G3. We've got the the sovereignty of God conference, our national conference, the the uh, 2023 G3 national conference right here in Atlanta. You don't want to miss it. Uh, September 21st through the 23rd. We're going to encourage you as as quickly as you can to get on and register. Go to g3men.org and get registered. I, I also want to stop here and tell you to do something for us. And here's what I want you to do. Before you do anything, hit the like button hit subscribe, these things help our algorithms. Uh, it helps us on, on, on Facebook, it helps us on YouTube, it helps us in every single platform. We are fighting against what's happening with, with YouTube and the like, and so you're helping us when you hit the like button. So we're gonna encourage you absolutely to do that. Uh, we've got a pre, pre-conferences coming up right before the national conference. There are two of them uh, for your viewing pleasure. Uh, one is uh, the gospel and the state. The gospel and the state put on by Grace Bible Theological Seminary. Our, our brother Owen Strand uh, and, and the folks, the great folks down there, are, are coming to uh, the G3 conference. Going to be putting on a, a dynamic pre-conference that you won't want to miss. Also, back again with us uh, are the Masters Fellowship. They're going to be doing a, a pre-conference of, about grace and courageousness. Gracious and courageous is the title. Go to the G3 uh, website. Go to g3men.org. Check out these pre-conferences, figure out which one works best for you, and don't you dare miss it. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be talking about limited atonement today. Yeah, uh, Very heavy, weighty topic, a great <laughs> subject matter. I can't wait to dive in. And as usual, uh, Josh, we're going to have you T.S.L.
1: Yeah, so the topic is limited atonement, so it's a controversial theological issue that we hear discussed in, in the local church setting often. Um, I think that, you know, when we think about the doctrines of grace, obviously, I think that we could all agree with this, Uh, the most difficult of those different, you know, doctrinal positions to eventually hold to, for many people, is limited atonement. Mm -hmm. Um, I I do really appreciate how historically you've had, you know, theologians like R.C. Sproul and others who have tried to smooth out the language so as to avoid, really, in many ways, uh, putting a, an unnecessary hurdle before people that they would have to jump over in order to believe and embrace doctrinal truth and biblical truth. So, changing the language to say "particular redemption" mm-hmm. that Jesus is dying for His people, which we're going to talk about some texts of Scripture in just a moment, right. um, or you know, this idea of definite atonement that Jesus is dying for a a definite group of people on the cross, not a general atonement. I think is critically important for us to think through. And so sometimes some of the ways that you might hear people change that language is is a helpful thing. Well,
2: those are really the better terms. Limited atonement just fits into the TULIP acronym, so absolutely. the only reason we use it. But definite definite atonement, that term, I think is the best Yeah, yeah. particular yeah. redemption works. Yeah, Right.
1: So when you're coming to this conversation, obviously, as Scott mentioned, the acronym of TULIP, so you have total depravity, mm-hmm. unconditional election, limited, limited atonement, atonement yep. irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Or preservation of the saints. Or preservation. Right, yeah, absolutely. Right. depends on how you look at it, right? So when we come to the conversation today, though, we want to ask ourselves honest questions like, is it possible that Jesus died... A general death for a general group of people that that they would then determine in their own lifetime by their own free will that they were a part of that group, right. Make, that they would, making
0: making redemption
1: probable or possible. Yeah, right. Instead of definite, right. Uh-huh. So those are really good questions to ask and to think through. I also want to urge people that are listening to this very conversation today to be able to think through conversations when you're hearing of this debate happening on Facebook or perhaps even in the comment section here on YouTube <laughs> where people are diving into the you know the issues of Calvinism, and people are very quick to run, especially if they don't hold to the doctrines of grace, mm-hmm. to just broad brush and even misuse terminology, which we have another podcast on that as well, the difference between heresy and error, mm-hmm. but to say that anyone who holds to the doctrines of grace, specifically anyone that's a Calvinist, is a heretic. Right. And I think that that's a problem. So yeah. we need to avoid that as yeah, well. Absolutely. I would urge anyone that's coming to this conversation today that is there's you know earnestly seeking truth to understand what these positions are to actually build your positions upon the text of scripture. Absolutely. Not because Spurgeon said it or because Calvin himself said it, which right. there's some history to that as well which we could talk about. Is it's not necessarily John Calvin who's saying I want all of my followers to call it Calvinism, right? You no, know, he didn't yeah. do that. He would avoid that, actually. Yeah. yeah. So what what is the doctrine of limited atonement? The doctrine of limited atonement, in short, would be this: that when Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, when you have the Son of the Living God dying on the cross, that He is actually dying in the place which we would call this substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. He is dying in the place of his people. So let's just kind of start there from from the text of Scripture. When we have the angel speaking to Joseph, who was astounded about the reality that his betrothed soon-to-be wife was with child, the angel said in Matthew 121, "...and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people." from their sins. Yes. So obviously we're seeing this this definite group of people that Jesus will save which then can be connected to a lot of other verses by the way throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament right. mm-hmm. that point us to the reality that Jesus is not dying for just a general group of people but he is actually dying as the lamb of God in the place of his people, yeah, right. Yeah.
2: right? Exactly. Yeah one i think the 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 biblical text that that i think articulates this really well and really settled this doctrine for me even in high school as i was as i was thinking through these issues is john chapter 10 where jesus himself says i am the good shepherd mm-hmm the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's right. And then what's instructive is that he goes on and he's talking to, you know, he says that he says that in verse 11, he says that again in verses 14 through 15, but then speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's two groups of people, sheep and not sheep. Right. And who did Jesus die for? Yeah. He didn't die for the not sheep. Yeah. He died for the sheep. He yeah. lays down his life for yeah. the sheep. And,
1: and the not sheep... Uh, Are called what? They're called goats. Goats, And then when we come to Matthew's gospel, we see that whole, you know, that whole narrative where he's saying, you know, this is the way things are going to come to a close in this age. Mm -hmm. And when the Son of Man returns, he's Mm going to take the sheep and place them on his right hand. Mm -hmm. He's going to take the goats and place them on his left hand. The sheep will be welcomed into his kingdom, Mm -hmm. and the goats will be sent off into eternal destruction. I I think one of the things that makes this this Particular doctrine difficult for people
0: uh, to wrap their minds around is really, it's, it's, it's emblematic of the fact that we, we don't want to allow God to be sovereign. In all areas, right? Uh, it's an issue of God's sovereignty. Is He able to to choose for Himself a people, uh, or is He required by by man in some way, shape, or form to to provide salvation to everyone? What's What's really going on? I think for me, coming from a, a more of a traditional uh, kind of SBC view, where most people are would consider themselves four point Calvinists, uh, the issue of limited atonement is that last. Particular doctrine that mm-hmm. that really holds people out. I think the thing that solidified it for me was when I understood the nature of mm-hmm. our salvation from Ephesians chapter 1, mm-hmm. uh, that it was a plan of God the Father in eternity past, the work of Christ in yeah. time, uh, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's really good. I think it would be good for all of us to talk about when we first came to the knowledge of this doctrine, but I, I can remember grappling with this issue in the local church. I mean, I remember being a a member of the local church and our pastors were putting before us specific studies in small groups. I was studying and reading and then looking at the footnotes and seeing John Owen, who is that? The death of death and the death of Christ. Mm -hmm. I'm reading these works and I'm grappling with the the, the truths that were set before me, I was asking good questions, but it would not be until years later that I would actually come to embrace limited atonement. Mm-hmm. I would struggle against it even all the way through seminary. For a long time, for a season of life, I actually held to what was called at that time a four-point you know Calvinist position, which right. so Christ- even now Christ- Christmas Calvinist. Yeah, oh, there Noel. you go. <laughs> so that's right. So, I mean, but if you really just take the doctrines and you and you place them on a whiteboard and then you logically work them out, it would almost be impossible to be a four point Calvinist mm-hmm. in that way because yeah. if if God is electing all of those who will be saved before the foundation of the world based upon unconditional election. Mm-hmm not based upon the free will of man, mm. then who exactly is Jesus dying for right, on right, the cross? Exactly, so it would right. make no sense. Like like it would almost separate the persons of the Trinity mm-hmm. where you have the Father acting in one way for one group of people and Jesus dying on the cross In time for another group of people, it it would almost pit them against one another.
2: Right when it really comes down to what exactly happened on the cross, you mentioned Owen's, you know, death of death and the death of Christ, which you know, there's there's a there's a number of sort of classic works that articulate this doctrine. That that was a significant work for me. Like I I was introduced to the doctrines of grace in high school. I was surrounded mostly by four point Calvinists. That was kind of the, the the milieu in which I grew. But it was text like John ten and then reading Owen, which like all Owen is not easy. Yeah. But that work is it really settles settles the question. Mm-hmm. And and you know, Owen has this classic argument that really, really did it for me. He says, You you've got to consider what happened on the cross. Either Christ died for all the sins of all men, in which case everyone will be saved. Mm-hmm. So that's universalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Or he died for some of the sins of all men. In other words, he didn't really accomplish anything on the cross, in which case no one would come to Christ. Mm-hmm. Or he died for all of the sins of some men, in which case those people will come to Christ right. and others will not. Right. And and so again, like you said, Josh, really logically and theologically, if you um, embrace the other doctrines, You can't get away from this final issue of definite atonement.
0: Yeah, yeah. For for me, it was uh, really trying to grapple with again being in that four point Calvinist environment, trying to grapple with all of the theological heroes that I was listening to. Uh, I was listening to you know Dr. James White, uh, people who were part of uh, uh, of the G three ministry.
1: So let's get this clear. Uh, Here we go. So James White. (laughs) Was one of your heroes?
0: Yeah, man, that's my guy. Oh God. man, James can, is gonna. This is, a, this, this is a new clip on social like, right here.
2: I
1: can see it now. James is gonna use this. Oh, um, I mean, see, I listen. I, I,
0: I, I respect him. He'll come to my defense. I'm not worried about okay, it. Okay, yeah, all right, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. All right. <laughs> I was listening to, and here was the here was the deal. Uh, in in full disclosure my thought was i did not want to i was listening to him about every other issue subject that he was talking about did not want to engage him on calvinism cuz i thought there's no way that i would know how to refute
1: you're not the only person that doesn't want to engage no james doubt. White. <laughs> so i had read norm geisler's book chosen but free mm-hmm. and
0: so had read that had walked through that and felt like okay mm-hmm. this is this is my my brand of calvinism right only to have james unpack that uh, and, and expose the fact that all of the definitions were changed and unbiblical. Yeah. Um, by the time I got through that work, I, I really thought, man, I, I, I might as well give it up. Based upon the the, the text of Scripture, mm-hmm. it's absolutely clear who is sovereign in salvation. Yeah,
1: and absolutely. God. And then for me, you know, holding that four-point position as well for so many years, fighting against it, in you know, seminary classes, writing papers, trying to articulate my position the very best way that I could. Um, I would actually come you know, full circle back here to my local church that I grew up in to serve as pastor, still holding to that four-point position, but not having really given myself to study this doctrine like for hours and hours and hours. So I, I took back up the study again and was actually uh, being pressed to examine texts like Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. And you know very clear passages in the New Testament, you know that have this language of many mm-hmm. instead of world, because you know historically it's always you know John three sixteen for God so loved the world and you know the world means world and you can't make the world's you know mean anything other than the world and so for me it was very difficult to to see how to put all these pieces together and then of course you're you're reading texts like Isaiah 53 which is a prophecy about Jesus's death 700 years before he he was born mm-hmm. and you have the text of scripture saying that he will uh, my servant will make many to be accounted righteous mm-hmm. i mean and it doesn't just say it once it is repeated 3 times the word many is used in that text to refer to the death of Jesus mm-hmm. and then of course you come to the classic passage and literally for me It was John 3, 16, studying John 3, Mm -hmm. coming to that passage, and then working out the language and the vocabulary and seeing, for God so loved the world, okay, I understand what that means, at least I think I do, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Mm -hmm. So it's Jesus' death for the whosoever believes not for the world. Right. Like, only those who believe will have eternal life. And so when you take into consideration all of the language of the New Testament, you see that Jesus is dying for his people, that the good shepherd is laying down his life for the sheep, that those individuals will be the ones who believe, and those individuals will not perish.
2: Right. And that kind of language is usually the biblical language people will bring up. What about these terms like world? doesn't all mean all. And, and admittedly, we have to explain what does that mean. That's right. But it's actually fairly simple to explain. In the context all doesn't always mean all. If That's all right. always means all, then there are many texts in scripture that would be absolutely nonsensical, or that even though, even four point Calvinists or even more Arminian leading leading people would would not interpret all to mean all. For example, John twelve thirty-two. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Right. So unless you're a universalist, right. you know that all doesn't mean all. And then, you know, even Acts chapter 2, the prophecy of Joel, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Mm-hmm. Does that mean all? Does that mean every single individual? Of course it doesn't. First uh, Timothy 2.1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Did Paul literally mean that in corporate worship we have to pray for every single individual? Right. Of course he didn't, right. right? We could go on and on. Clearly, there are texts where all doesn't mean all. And so what about these texts in which it says that that you know that it uses the language of all or the world? Well, clearly then contextually, you can see that in almost every one of those cases, the argument is he didn't just die for the Jews. That's exactly he right. He died for People of uh, without national or ethnic distinction. Right. He died for Jews and Gentiles. That's the 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 expansion language that's being used in those texts. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean every individual, because again, if it meant every individual then it really would lead you to a, a universalist position. Yeah, Absolutely.
1: in fact, if you if you press that, then you, you come to Colossians 1, and you have that, that text there in, in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, yeah, whether right. on earth or in heaven. If if you really press the language of all means all, because mm-hmm. it's all that all could mean, if you press that definition upon that verse, then even the devil gets saved. Right. I yep. mean, so we have to... As you stated, when we interpret scripture, we actually have to interpret the scripture according to the context, right. which then unpacks the and truth.
2: that that very point is another thing that convinced me. Spur- Spurgeon's point on this issue was if Jesus died for every single individual, then he died for people who were already in, in hell. hell when he was on the cross. Yeah. And that would anybody say that, right? No. You have to say that if you if you want to if you want to argue for a general atonement that he died for all people then that means people who are already in hell, he's dying for them. And that's, again, theologically and even rationally nonsensical.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and then again, you know, when we hear people talking about, well, you know, uh, Calvinism is heresy. If you're a Calvinist, you're a heretic. You know, again, I would just press people to, before you say that, before you tweet that, before you retweet that, you need to think about that, honestly, because if you're going to use the word, uh, heretic or heresy in that manner, then you're going to have to really, in many ways, you're going to have to say, well, then Spurgeon's in hell and all these missionaries like William Carey, they're in hell. And, and, and that's, a, that's a serious charge. Yeah. You know? it, it is. I think
0: what people want to do, they, they have a tendency to, in, in their mind, want to rescue God. right? So mm. the thought process is God can't be a meanie. Right. I have a better view. I personally have a better view, right? I, I personally have a better view of of how salvation should work than a, what Scripture has to say about it, or than what Calvinists claim God has about it. And so as a result, we begin to frame our own kind of man-made ideas around what we consider fairness uh, to God. And so when when you deal with things like that, you kind of absolve yourself from from reading uh, texts like Romans chapter nine. You don't want to look at, at at predestination in that context because your thought is I you know I, th- that that doesn't make sense in my system mm-hmm. and so you mm-hmm. avoid those kinds of
2: things yeah. yeah. And let's be clear too, you know, we we believe a general atonement or a more arminian position is error is wrong, but we wouldn't call that heresy either. There right. are believers who hold to that and who have held to it.
1: Could lead to heresy, but it could
2: lead it's to heresy, right? But it's error. Right. And that and that's where again our we, we'd encourage people to listen to our other podcast episode. There are things that are error and there are even serious errors that are nevertheless not heresy. Heresy nope. is something that sends you to hell if mm-hmm. you believe it. Mm-hmm and so we can argue against doctrines that we believe to be unbiblical and error without automatically running to the caricature of heresy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll, I'll read to you just a portion of what uh, Spurgeon said about Calvinism as a whole. He says, "I have my own ideas and those I always state boldly, which obviously if you if you know anything about Spurgeon, he wasn't he wasn't afraid of of uh, being bold on anything, and he said, it is a nickname to call it Calvinism. <laughs> Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. He goes on in the rest of that statement in the sermon, and he he talks about preaching justification by mm-hmm. faith alone and Christ alone. Mm-hmm. And if you really do hold to the the true teachings of justification by faith alone, and then, of course, what substitutionary atonement looks like, That is what Calvinism teaches. So don't be afraid of embracing truth because of the baggage that you've found on some blog site someplace or on Twitter based upon where someone says that that's Heresy yeah, or it's yeah. heretical.
0: I, I kind of want to ask a question here, and and I I know the answer for me, but I think it'd be great to to flush out. When when I came into a knowledge of the doctrines of grace, studying the text of Scripture, understanding uh, particular issues like limited atonement, um, it it shifted how I worship God. Mm. It really transformed my view of God's love for me, for us. Right, and and my my response was not. I'm the chosen. I'm the elect, right? My response was, "Why me? Yeah, you know, my response was one of absolute humility. Uh, so on the one hand, where you have the uh, the, the, the arrogant Calvinist uh, who's beating their chest about doctrine or theology, that's 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 error, right?'re mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're missing the whole point of of the doctrine itself. And for us to understand, one of the things that you said uh, just this past week uh, in in our in our Bible study, was, was how these kinds of doctrines should humble us, uh, how we should worship God all the more as a result. Uh, that's, kind of the, that's kind of where I landed as I came to a clearer understanding of, of these doctrines.
1: Yeah, I think anyone that's on Twitter or social media that's bragging about limited atonement and how Jesus laid down his life for them <laughs> as opposed to the non-elect, they haven't truly understood the atonement. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I think this is a really important point because— you, you hear, and, and it's why I prefer to use a word like definite atonement than limited atonement. Again, I don't have a problem with that, but you hear limited atonement, and you think, oh, this is just kind of a negative doctrine. Uh, it's something we, we ought not fight about, and it's something, you know, ancillary. But in reality, th- this doctrine has, has such devotional benefit and ought to lead us to worship. Like we can say, I can say, Jesus died for me in a way that he didn't that he didn't die for someone who's not one of his chosen and that wasn't based on any goodness in myself he chose me before the foundation of the world merely because of his own love that he chose to set upon me what what can i do but fall on my face in appreciation and love and thanksgiving and humility because jesus died for me he chose to love me before i when i was an enemy when i was a hater of god and uh, so it really is a it, it's a it's a doctrine that ought to lead us to heartfelt, deep thanksgiving and worship.
1: Yes, it does. And then beyond that, I mean, if you just want to talk about love and God loving the world, and then God loving His elect, I mean, it's quite obvious when you read the Scripture that you see that God has you know various different types of love mm-hmm. and that's and that's okay and it's good for for us to see that for god to in human language articulate various types of love just like we do this in our own personal lives sure. as well we yep. do it in the life of the church yep. i love my children and my family in a way that i don't necessarily love the other families and children right. in the in the church mm-hmm. And that's okay, and that's not sinful. Mm-hmm. But uh, for us to approach God and say, well, he only has one type of love, right. and he loves the world, and that means that he loves the goats and he loves the sheep, just exactly the same. Mm-hmm. That's a misrepresentation of, of the love of God. Right. But furthermore, I, I would also like to ask you, brothers, mm-hmm. how, how do we a, approach evangelism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. with this
0: doctrine? Yep. Yeah, th- for, for me, this, this was a tremendous help for me. Uh, as, as someone who is in, in front of abortion mills, as someone who uh, did a lot of street evangelism, uh, this was very freeing. Um, it, it helped me to understand that th- the thing that I was responsible for was obedience to proclaim the message of the gospel. Uh, I, I was not responsible for any outcome. Uh, it, it didn't require me to figure out which, which set of words I needed to connect together and align to get somebody to respond in a particular way or to appeal to them from an emotional standpoint alone, right? Uh, Not that I wouldn't cry out or, or, or try to persuade, uh, but that at the end of the day, no measure of my persuasion uh, had the transformative power of of, of of the message of the gospel mm-hmm. in the heart of one who Christ died for. Yeah. Uh, that it was not on my it was not on me to do uh, that. I could free myself of that burden. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. And contrary to to those who again would caricature <laughs> the position by saying this would stifle evangelism, it actually fuels evangelism because we know that there are people out there for whom Christ died. Mm-hmm. There are sheep out there. Mm-hmm. And so we, as as then preachers of the gospel, we give a universal call. We preach the gospel to all people without distinction mm-hmm. because we don't know who are among the elect and who are not. Yeah, Universal call of the gospel. And that same gospel the Bible teaches is a word of condemnation to the unelect, mm-hmm. and it is a word of grace to those whom God has chosen. What,
0: yeah. what, what, a, what a great thought that we as believers in Christ have the opportunity to participate in God's work of salvation in the Mm -hmm. heart of the unbeliever. Uh, I I used to tell a story. It's kind of reminds me of when I was a young kid, I used to uh, ride in the front seat with with my, with my mom. And of course, when, when, when I was much younger, you didn't have seatbelt laws, Mm -hmm. you didn't have these kinds of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. She would, (laughs) she would kind of
0: hold me back. And if, 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 if things got crazy, but uh, she would let me, you know, drive the car. Right, I, I was in the
2: passenger seat. I'd say that I'm explains can- a lot. It yeah. does explain
0: a lot, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> he still hasn't gotten out of some of those habits. No. Yeah. So <laughs> that, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> if you
1: ever go to lunch with Virgil, you need to pray before you leave the Definitely parking lot. pray. <laughs> yes. Definitely pray.
0: She would let me hold on to the steering wheel of the car. She was driving the car, and we, had, we didn't have you know, nice, nice uh, vehicle by any stretch. Uh, we were a relatively poor family. But as we drove, I could feel the ground underneath, right? I could feel the bumps and the turns, and I could feel the engine. I could feel everything by holding on. Now, she was, she was maneuvering the car. I just had my hand on it. She had her hand on the gas, and she had her hand on the brake. But in my mind, I was driving the car. Um, and for us to have the opportunity to participate in the work of God in salvation, in the heart of those who are coming from death to life, being able to kind of put our hand on the steering wheel of God's plan, if you will, mm-hmm. is an absolutely amazing experience. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. It is. And then, to, you know, th- just, to, just to piggyback off of that and to talk a little bit more about a- a evangelism itself, to think about how we approach speaking to unbelievers. Some would say, well, we have to close the deal we have to actually close the deal. Mm-hmm. So whether you're preaching a sermon and you come to that climactic point at the conclusion of a sermon, you have to be able to close the deal and bring those people to a place to where you draw them to Christ. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I would completely disagree with you know any form of manipulation. But what I would agree with is this idea of Persuading people. Mm -hmm. When we preach the gospel, we are to preach with a desire to persuade people to believe the truth, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. But as we think about limited atonement, as we think about definite atonement or particular redemption, Mm -hmm. when we're sharing the gospel over pizza with an unbeliever or preaching a sermon or standing out in front of an abortion mill sharing the gospel, we don't have to say, as we're sharing the gospel, in order to share the gospel fully, to say, Jesus died for you in mm-hmm. order to close the deal. Right. You don't. You can say, Jesus Christ died for sinners. Right. His, His death is sufficient for, for all of the elect. Yes. Or you could say, you don't even have to use the word elect if, if you don't want to. It's a biblical word. You can use it. But if you just want to say, you know, any and all who come to Christ— mm-hmm will be saved he died for every last one of their sins will you come to christ right. you can talk like that without actually telling people that christ died for them because yep. here's the reality we don't know that right. for sure
2: and i don't even have a problem with saying christ christ's death is sufficient for all, all. yeah all. sure i mean it is it's sufficient for any anybody yeah but it is efficient only for those for whom he died, yeah. which are his chosen people.
1: Yeah, I, I used to be really big on the sufficient, efficient sort of you know, language, but again, I, I want to be specific in what I do know. And what I do know yeah. is that his death was poured out for who? For First the elect people. and for the sheep. Um and again, I, I would I would not disagree with anyone that chooses to use that language or that terminology, yeah. but but what we do need to do is we need to be specific. And again, to the, the conversation we had just a moment ago, when we're sharing the gospel, as Scott said, we are sharing the gospel indiscriminately to all. Right. Right. It is a general call. We are asking, we are pleading with people to come. Right. In fact, there's another quote by Spurgeon that I love, and he talks about that we should not ever allow anyone to go uh, off into hell unprayed for. Mm-hmm. Let them even leap over our bodies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you hear that man talking about presenting the gospel to unbelievers. Mm-hmm. He's passionate about it. Right. He's talking about like holding on to their feet, yes. begging them to come to Christ. Don't let them go to hell unprayed for. That doesn't sound like sort of a, a cold hyper Calvinism, right. Right. right? In fact, we would also commend uh, Spurgeon's work to you on this subject. Against hyper Calvinism, you can mm-hmm. find that if you search online, you can find that that. Uh that book as well. But again, we want to be clear that we should passionately declare the gospel, urge people to believe the truth, mm-hmm. but yet be very clear that we believe that Jesus died for his people. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah as, as I mentioned before, this issue
0: really should cause us to worship differently. Yeah. Uh, it should transform how we see uh, the, the sovereignty of God, particularly in this area of salvation. Uh, it's with that in mind that we, are, we also have uh, worship workshops uh, that we. We've got put together for you to participate in. The next one is going to be July 27th and 28th, uh, there in Jacksonville, Texas, uh, BMA Seminary. Uh, you won't want to miss it. Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. Um, you're going to be there. Who else? Who else will be there with yeah, you? Yeah, Laramie
2: Minga, Matt Sykes. Yep. Yeah, and uh, it'll, it'll be it, it'll be exciting because it's open. It's open to pastors, to church leaders, to think through. Uh, biblically, how we plan worship, how we think through worship. Uh, uh, the seminary there is, is hosting us, but it's not just for seminary That's students, right. although seminary students are certainly uh, welcome. The, the men who are training there for ministry or are currently in ministry, and uh, so it'll be a wonderful time of, yeah. of thinking carefully about worship.
0: These, these events have been awesome for those who've had the opportunity to participate. It's it's really empowered them and encouraged them to go back uh, to their local churches and really transform what worship looks like. I, I've said often, more times than not, those who hold to doctrines of grace or call themselves Reformed, uh, embrace that in, in the pulpit primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see a transformation quickly from maybe a topical approach to preaching to an expository approach to preaching. The last place, unfortunately, that we see reformation as it relates to you know, as it relates to transforming uh, uh, your worship uh, is in the area of music. Um, and so it's important for you to come, come check out the worship workshop, Jacksonville, Texas, BMA Seminary, July 27th and 28th. Go to go to g3men.org, go to the events, and then and then just find that worship workshop. You'll want to be a part of that.
1: Yeah, I think these worship workshops are very important. You know, we have expository preaching workshops, and sometimes people think, "Well, that's for the preachers," and then the worship one is for the
2: music guys. The music guys, right, right, right. But <laughs> he said it
1: actually for <laughs> it's actually for pastors. That's right. You should actually come if you're a pastor. You need to be able to answer the the little lady that walks up to you after church on the Lord's Day in the foyer of the church and and ask the question, "Why is it?" that our bulletin and our order of worship mm-hmm. looks the way it does and yes. is laid out here. Who chooses that? Mm-hmm. Why is it, you know, why does it look like this? Who makes the choice for it to look like this? I would urge you to think about that mm-hmm. and to be able to ask yourself, why does our worship service have this shape to it? And again, if you come to this workshop, you'll be able to work through those issues. Yeah, the last thing I'll say about that is as, as
0: we've had the opportunity here at Praise Mill to experience that, it's transformative, it's absolutely transformative. It will have a, a massive impact uh, on, on how you view God, uh, on your relationship with, with church members, uh, on, on what you desire to see as you, as you approach the Lord's Day. And so I, I just want to encourage you to, to uh, participate in the workshops, take that information back, and, and be enriched uh, in your local churches. As we begin to wrap this conversation up, uh, Josh, anything that you want to leave us with?
1: I remember one time David Miller. Many people who have been around <laughs> G3 for some time uh, have have uh, been blessed to sit under the preaching of David Miller, who in many ways uh, is you know an evangelist from Arkansas. He he you know calls himself a country preacher at large, and so I can remember one time he was preaching here at Praise Mill, and I'm sitting on the front, and uh, he's he's unpacking. The, you know, the, the deep doctrines of election and predestination, and he's talking about these things. And, and at one point, he just said, uh, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? And of course, he's asking a question to try to make them pause and to reflect upon what he's been unpacking for the last 20 minutes or so. And he says, what I'm trying to say to you is that Jesus was a Calvinist. <laughs> and when he said that, I'm sitting there on the front row and my I just raised my eyebrows because I knew what he was doing. But lots of people are looking at me like, Pastor, what are you going to say about <laughs> yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not the one that said it. Right, first of all, right. he said <laughs> so it. So I don't have to defend that. Yeah. But it, it did provide for some interesting conversations. Mm-hmm because a lot of people will say, well, that's just the opinion of a theologian. Sure. That's just the opinion of a guy that's dead that happens to have a book that's on your uh, shelf in your office, right. like Calvin or Luther or even Spurgeon, for instance. Mm-hmm. But let's go to the text of Scripture and hear what Jesus said. In In Mark chapter 10, you have James and John, the the sons of Zebedee, who come to Jesus. Now, you have to think about this. They come to Jesus with this question like, we want to sit, one of us on your right hand and the other on your left hand in glory. Like, grant us this, this privilege, this, this wish of ours. Jesus takes this opportunity to talk to them about what they would endure as he would endure suffering. And then he eventually comes down to verse number 45. So this is Mark 10, verse 45. And this is what Jesus said. He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he doesn't say he came to give his life a ransom for the whole world. Right? He says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So clearly right there, Jesus is talking about his death and the application of his death is for the many, for the whoever does believe, for the sheep on the right hand rather than the goats on the left hand, for the church, Ephesians 5, and for, again, John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we must see this unpacked all through Scripture. And then, of course, even in Jesus's own preaching, he taught this very doctrine. Thank you so much, for joining us, we hope you've been edified by all that you've heard
0: in the G3 podcast. We are excited that you were able to join us. We're going to ask you to like, share, subscribe. Uh, definitely help us out with algorithms. We're pushing back against culture uh, that's difficult to do, and so every like that you have, if we're if you're on Apple Podcasts, go and give us a five star review. Uh, fill out so you know the forms and let them know uh, that you're enjoying the the, the podcast with us. Uh, until next time, appreciate you joining us, and we'll see you
1: next time on the G3. podcast.